Welcome to the podcast by Sympathetic People for Sympathetic People. My name's Tim, and my co-conspirator is Ivan. We're back after a pretty long hiatus. And today, we're going to be talking about narrative, metaphor, and how the world hangs together, or doesn't. First time doing this for a while, so we might be a little bit rusty. Um, we've decided a kind of an easy topic, maybe <laughs> complicated topic, but something we're both very interested in uh, for today's discussion, which is storytelling or narrative in science, and maybe metaphor, use of metaphor in science. And I'm sure we'll we'll extend that to talk about things that are, are not merely scientific. So, Ivan, do you want to uh, kick us off with some observations on that topic? Observations on that topic. My, my opinion on that topic is that science should be about narrative by default. Because mm-hmm. science, since science studies, you know, causality, it studies the uh, causal interactions between things. Causal interactions are, I mean, most of the time they are directional. I mean, they are directional by you know, definition, right? Mm. So whether they are bi-directional or, you know, unidirectional is a slightly different thing. But the the uh, thing that they're directional means that there is a narrative. You know, mm. if A causes B, there is a narrative of A causing B. Mm. So anything in science in principle should be, you know, kind of a woven around narratives for that reason and also for the reason that we are about narratives. Mm. You know, like our lives are seen as a, uh, you know, like one protagonist story about us. And even though they, you know, are in fact disjointed because, you know, we remember some things, then we don't remember other things, then, you know, we sleep, we do whatever, but we still thread them in the single narrative that has coherence and just, you know, jointed account of our life which i mean is fictitious but that's the way we perceive mm. the world right mm. so basically so, we're, we're hardly likely to understand anything that is not in narrative form yeah because that's yeah, yeah, what we yeah. live through yeah exactly mm. so in order for you know like the best science i mean the best quote-unquote science like you know the science that would be published for the sake of argument in the top uh, journals mm. it is usually narrative right they're looking for a story. They're looking for something to, you know, have some meaning in a way. And meaning is usually about the story. Like meaning cannot be, uh, like, if something means something to you, that means that it connects with your altogether narrative. It means that it fits into the, in your narrative or the narrative of the world to which you fit in. Yeah. So, so I think it's it's kind of a key question whether there can be such a thing as meaning or explanation in the absence of narrative form? Is that just a category error to imagine that you could have a non-narrativized explanation? Fair, yeah. I mean, my, my understanding is that basically if you're trying to explain something, you're creating a narrative. 
because you're at least looking at it in terms of, you know, from time space perspective. Mm. But I'm sure that, <clears throat> I mean, I know, in fact, I know for, for a fact that uh, mathematicians would kind of disagree with that because their, their view and explanation is that it can be abstract. But I'm not entirely sure if they understand uh, that, you know, their equations or whatever things they're doing, they also have directionality, mm. right? The process of them solving it is their narrative. Mm. So if they have a problem and then they come into certain conclusion, then, you know, if they put in the paper the, the road that took them to uh, the conclusion and that what it means for the greater mathematics, if this is their narrative, mm. right? This might not be a you know, narrative of, uh, you know, beasts who evolve into some other beasts, but it's still a narrative because it still has a progression. It has, uh, you know, things um, happening in sequence and that sequence is important and there is a meaning of those things happening in that sequence. The relationships that define the sequence uh, yeah. are meaningful. So I think it would be, it'd be helpful just to grab a, a basic definition of narrative, and I just got one from like you know dictionary.com or whatever comes up on Google, um, because I think a lot of people will probably think, and I think you've just hinted at that, a lot of people will probably think of you know literature when they think of narrative, or they'll think of mythology, and they'll think of science in some way as in stark contrast to certainly mythology or to the humanities more broadly and they think maybe narrative is is the domain of the humanities or or of ancient people who were very primitive and just trying to understand the world in their primitive ways and i'm sure we're going to get to a conversation of how science is actually not distinct from those traditions Mm -hmm. but first um maybe just a definition of, of narrative and so what comes up when i just type narrative into Google, a little dictionary box that comes up, is a spoken or written account of connected events, semicolon, a story. And I think that that fits perfectly well with what you've just been saying, that whenever you have a temporal series, a series arrayed in time of one event leading to another, that is really definitionally... A narrative yeah yeah but at the same time you know people are so afraid of narrative in science mm. like i i wouldn't be able to come up with a quote from the top of my head but basically <laughs> you know both you and i have been in a lot of discussions with people in science who are just like you know science is about facts mm. science is about stories storytelling in science should be you know held to the minimum possible amount mm. and you know most important thing about science is experiments and the experiments and the you know, results those experiments yield. And it's like, well, not really. Mm. Because the, if you join the experiments, you know, the, the series of experiments in its essence, in account of that, would be a narrative. Because, you know, you have made an experiment A, it gave you results B, then you made experiment C to come up with a result D, right? Mm. It is still a narrative. It's still your progression, your path of how you eventually came with the you know, final results. But then, if you don't put it into the context of at least, you know, the, what's known on the subject before you, it has no meaning for science. I mean, it kind of has, but it's still, like, not, mm. it's not the good science, right? It's but as soon as, Yeah, but as soon as you put it into the context of greater science, you're doing narrative, mm. because we have a greater narrative over, you know, whatever, each individual branch of science. 
and we see how whatever you were doing fits into that. So yeah, I think I think the the sort of allergy to narrative that some people seem to express is. I mean, dare I say, naive on a number of levels. You know, it's related to their also naive allergy to metaphor, but it's also, and I think we, we need to talk about that, but I think it's also the lie is given. I mean, it's demonstrated to be inaccurate um, when, as you've mentioned already, you look at papers that make it into the highest impact journals, they're always quite narrativized and we've all read or those of us who have waded through the scientific literature in any given subject area and those of us who um, act as as peer reviewers for, for any given journal have all read been exposed to been asked to review perhaps papers which were insufficiently narrativized papers in which really they're just data dumps where somebody has done a bunch of experiments of, of whatever kind they might be, and then they're just dumping all of the data purely descriptively into the paper. And one wants to say, and actually I have said in, in at least one review, you know, why don't you just create a database? You know, this isn't a paper, this is just a bunch of data. Um, so I think none of us really enjoy engaging with things that aren't narrativized whether we're scientists or not and it's not just a matter of enjoyment although this is is you know the flip side of, of not enjoying the thing is that we can't actually extract anything from it there's no meaning to it when you just report a bunch of of, of data it doesn't you know it doesn't compute for us you know narrative seeking organisms so I yeah think the the metaphor issue and the reason that I think it's it's naive and I think potentially quite damaging to be allergic to metaphor is because that leads to the belief or the assumption that words can in fact be the things that they signify that there's a one, yeah, that there's yeah, yeah, a one to one yeah. relationship between these things and of course there is a, an important use of, of, of metaphor or narrative, which, you know, the words metaphor or narrative, which refer more specifically to things which are very, you know, like storytelling or, um, you know, certain kinds of literary uses of metaphor. But in a very important way, all words are metaphorical. They stand for things that they are not. And... Yeah. Here, here I'll just have a, a really quick definition of metaphor. A thing regarded as representative or symbolic of something else. That's what a word is. A word is not only representative or symbolic of something else. It's symbolic in uh, the sense that's used in at least some strands of, of semiotics, uh, like those... Um, founded by Charles Sanders Peirce, in the sense that their relationship to the thing that they signify is essentially arbitrary. It's only <clears throat> defined by convention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that's, I think, you know, that's actually an important thing because that makes it different from numbers. That makes it different from, mm. I don't know, like letters to less extent. 
but basically to you know mathematical operators because mm. those things usually stand to one to one relation the relation right they mm. uh, they are symbols for the exact operation and they're not symbols for something else yeah so they they so, I would say they stand well, in a certain those kind of a murky boundaries yeah. right because when the you know red ends and pink starts when I don't know violet ends and blue starts right so in a lot of ways, you know, like, I don't know, a chair or a stool or many other things, like a lot of words, they basically, you know, transition into one, from mm. one to another. Mm. Mm. We kind of like to think that we are, you know, we have it nailed what, you know, I don't know, a dog is or what, you know, a cat is. Mm. But if you look at the, you know, ancestral, uh, you know, carnivore, is it a dog, is it a cat? <laughs> but, you know, like we don't have a word for it because we have not experienced it enough to have a word for it. But it's still, you know, the point is that at a certain point, any category will merge into another category. Any word at some point will kind of be, you know, becoming another word. Mm. So, so think, they are by definition, of course. Yeah. And I, I actually think that, um, and I think you at least know that I think this, there's a way in which mathematic, mathematical representations are kind of metaphorical as well. They stand in a certain relationship to certain properties of the things that they describe, like the structural relationships of those things, for example. Um, but they don't actually contain a description of many of the other properties of those things, like, um, for example, how those things might look when we when we see them. You know, so there, there's a there are a mathematical description is a kind of coarse graining in which everything other than the, you know, often referred to as the, as the structural relationships between things, everything other than that is stripped out of the description. We don't need to go in detail there. And I think, you know, there are, there are many pathways we could travel down this conversation. We could get into a, you know, a deep conversation of the, the different kinds of signs uh, discussed in, in, in semiotics. We could talk about certain naive uh, metaphysical assumptions that are implicit in um, people rejecting the idea that words are intrinsically metaphors or even that mathematics is in some sense metaphorical. But maybe we'll get there. But one thing I, wanna, I want your reaction to is, see if I can formulate this question uh, lucidly. So, is, so if we agree... I know you and I agree, but for the sake of argument, if we agree that explanation and meaning really only exists in narrative form, is that because, is that, again, is that a purely conventional thing which is derived from our uniquely human cultural evolutionary history? So it just goes back to the fact that our deep ancestors started to explain the world to each other through narratives, through myths, for example, um, and that we've just inherited that long legacy. So is it just that we're in this kind of purely human conventionalist bubble of narrative, and maybe in other parts of the universe there are intelligent beings that would explain exactly the same you know, series of events, uh, which almost sounds like now a contradiction in terms, but um, in a way that's somehow not narrative, in, in, in narrative form? Or is it that our narrative, the reason we've always explained things in narrative form is because that is actually the form of the, 
you know, observer independent world in some way. And I guess the follow up to that question is, is this a question that makes any sense whatsoever? But is that is that clear what I'm asking? Is that clear the difference yeah, between yeah, those yeah. two things? No, I think I think we we explain things in narratives and think in narratives because uh, the way we process information is temporal based. So you know, inside our essentially, one can say that uh, neuronal networks are narratives of a way. I mean, they obviously know they obviously branch, right? But they still have directionality and they still have some. Something. Excuse me. You can cut. You can then no, keep no. it up. Keep going. Keep going. It's all good. Here you are. Okay. Basically, I'm thinking that you know uh, that <coughs> the possibility for us to understand something in uh, you know a temporal sense, which essentially will be you know non-narrative sense, is constrained by the fact that we cannot understand things in you know stable way because in order for us to process things in order for us to think there has to be a certain process that keeps going inside our head like if it stops we stop right and for as long as it's going mm. it, it creates a narrative because it creates connections between you know certain objects certain properties forms them into objects right and then connects those objects in the way that they relate to each yeah. other in whatever real world or our science <clears throat> I think that would be a constraint. It's not necessarily meaning that, you know, because like when you see a cube, right, you don't see a narrative of a cube, but there is still an ongoing process that creates mm -hmm. that cube for you, for mm -hmm. you to see it. It's not, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it's not put on pause. Basically, if you put it on standby mode, it won't create you a cube. So I think that, but then, you know, because of that, we, uh, the fact that we live in time, we, mm. we you know experience our lives as sequences of events, and so the fact that a we process things in temporal uh, dimension and we occupy temporal dimension kind of means that we understand things in temporal in, in respect to their position in time or their you know like basically sequence time time sequence. Yeah, like I I certainly agree with all of that. But then the question still remains. And again, it may not be a question that makes any sense in some way. I suspect that it is a question that doesn't make any sense, but it is a question that has um, you know, caused a lot of, of, of philosophical speculation and argument and hinges on, or doesn't hinge on, but also influences the way we interpret certain results in physics and that sort of stuff. The question still remains in even the way you express it, you're saying that it's because we are beings in time. You know, we are in yeah. time. Okay, so the question still remains then. Is time something that we project onto the world because of something that's, you know, human-specific or specific to the kind of being that we are? Or is it that we are beings in time because... That's the only way to be because that is a, you know, as objective a um, property of the universe in which we in fact live as any other. So we, again, I'm not sure if that's putting it extremely clearly. Yeah, I, see, I see where you're going with it. I think that you cannot perceive things without uh, being in time because 
uh, perception implies that there is a state A where you don't have a knowledge about the object and for a state B where you do have a knowledge. And in order for you to transfer mm -hmm. from state A to state B, you need to spend time. Mm -hmm. Like, unless you spend time, you cannot occupy them at the same, you know, time, right? Like, you cannot, <laughs> you cannot yeah. change states without changing time. Because it necessarily implies that there was a past and present or future state. Mm. So, I don't think it's possible. But at the same time, you know, who knows? Like, you know... Whatever, like you know, just because you know we have been able to fantasize about it, and mm -hmm. we've been able to, we as humanity, we've mm -hmm. been able to, you know, philosophically, you know, discuss those things and create the idea of like, you know, the universal God that perceives everything mm -hmm. at the same time, mm -hmm. and you know, as it happens, was happening, and will be happening. Yeah. And basically, twice, you know, space without time, and maybe even not the space because he's or she is or it is everything. Mm -hmm. So. Just by virtue of the fact that we have been able to come up with that idea, mm. kind of hints at the possibility, at least general possibility of that idea. Well, that because, kind of sounds like an ontological proof of the existence of God, and I don't... Yeah, I'm not going there. I'm not saying that this is a proof. I'm no, saying that this hints to that, that creates a possibility for that. I don't believe it's mm. possible, personally, no. because that kind of it does not make sense to me. Mm. But, you know, if we can create an abstraction that works like that, mm. that hints of the possibility of that abstraction being physically possible. Well, maybe, or maybe it's just that we have this incredible capacity to create counterfactuals, uh, and yeah, that, kind, that kind of idea doesn't... So it makes sense logically... It does make sense logically, and that's why there are things like the ontological proof of God. You know, I can conceive of a of a perfect being, and because existence, uh, you know, is more perfect than or is better than non-existence, therefore the most perfect being conceivable must exist. You know, that that kind of sounds logical in a way, and I mean, I'm doing it in injustice by not really presenting it as a as a proper stepwise sequence of arguments, but it could actually be complete nonsense like it could just well, be it's an idea without a referent you know there's nothing possible in actual reality that it could it could refer to so i tend to think that time is as objective a property as you know we, we can we can possibly discover um and I think that the reason we are beings in time, and this this could get obviously into the kind of narrative that I you know personally prefer, which is in some sense an er narrative, because I would con I would uh, contend that all narratives are evolutionary, and in fact the way you've described narrative and, and the definition of narrative that we've had, you know, a leads to b leads to c, a sequence of events causally connected. You're describing an evolutionary sequence, yeah. um, and my particular evolutionary narrative would suggest that the reason we are beings in time is because essentially everything that is in time. Uh, everything that is is in time, and we are just a a part of that. So we are a particular pattern that has evolved for, for particular functions, 
um, but that is not disjunct in some way from the rest of the universe. I don't think I'm saying this very lucidly, but or very clearly, because I'm trying not to use jargon and I'm getting tripped up uh, at that point. But we, the properties that we have, we have because we are part of a universe that has those properties. We are not in yeah. some way radically disjunct from the universe. We do have properties that lots of other parts of the universe doesn't have, obviously, or don't have. Um, but our basic, uh, the basic processes which constitute us are part of the basic fabric of reality or anything that deserves the term reality being applied to it. Yeah, well, that's fair. Unless you obviously go all, you know, Chalmers on us and say that consciousness is, you know, whatever. Or anybody else who says that consciousness is whatever and a causal, yes. Mm -hmm. Because those smarts obviously believe that, you know, we have something that is disconnected from the universe in, you know, just some well, very... I, I think it would be a disservice to Chalmers to put him in that group, but I think... Yeah, but right, yeah, yeah, I'm not saying that Chalmers mm. is believing that, just Chalmers, yeah. you know, yeah. I think, I think the connection there is that Chalmers has talked a lot about panpsychism... And yeah. I think that some of the panpsychists, so for those who don't know, panpsychism being the belief that consciousness is a fundamental property of the universe, like suffuses everything. Um, I think one of the things that drives some people towards panpsychism is their commitment to epiphenomenalism, which is what you're getting at, which is the idea that consciousness is a causal basically like consciousness is what it is like to be a part of the universe but that itself has no um you know causal effect on what the system that you are is actually doing yeah yeah it's like you know some whatever electric generator creates a magnetic field and that magnetic field is just there because it's mm. working it's kind of you know byproduct mm. of it being there yeah same thing but the, so the, the, my product of being a part of the universe is to have some sort of consciousness. Yeah. And if you're as complex a system as a human, you ha as a byproduct of you being that system, you have a mm. even greater consciousness. But mm. if you remove that consciousness some way, like if you curb it, if you put, you know, a subconscious silencer inside a human, that human will still do and act what a human, you know, does and acts, mm. but without consciousness, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and actually, you are correct to um, to reference Chalmers there, of course, because of the zombie, the so-called yeah, zombie yeah. problem that we could have something that's functionally equivalent to a human being but did not have consciousness, which of course which I think is, is a ridiculous idea, because I think yeah, even, <laughs> even to take your example of a you know a system um, that is creating a magnetic field simply as a byproduct of whatever it's actually you know doing. Um, in biological evolution, that would be an exaptation for some kind of subsequently selectable function of that magnetic yeah. field. So it might turn out that having a magnetic field means that you attract certain kinds of metals, uh, and then that those metals could be put to use in order to build more of yourself in some way. Or you know, this is obviously quite fanciful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But in evolution, that's exactly how it works. So if something like consciousness as some kind of integrated sensorium which is yeah. associated with some sort of higher order experiential reality 
Um, and even that, I think, is is mystifying consciousness too much to say it that way. But it remains a difficult thing to talk about, partly because of a lot of the baggage that we've inherited from a huge amount of bad philosophy on the subject. Um, but even if it was initially epiphenomenal, that it just so happened that when you... Yeah, it would then be put to yeah. use, absolutely. It's like, yeah, if, you're a, if you're a flower, right, you have all that colors from totally unrelated pigments, that they had colors just because they, they are, you know, physical objects and they reflect light in a certain way. Mm -hmm. But initially, there would be no hormone of growth or something. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that, you know, you have that, you know, red colored, uh, you know, a red pigmented uh, hormone of growth at the apex of a plant. And so, you know, then it attracts, you know, uh, whatever, insects or something, because if everything is green, this thing is red. Mm. And so then mm. you can put it in fuse yeah, by making it a red plant. So it, co it yeah. ends up corresponding purely by chance in this case, in this example that you're giving, with some other objective feature of the world, which is the yeah. particular wavelengths that particular insects are visually sensitive to. It stands out for them. And... and their sensitivity to that wavelength was epiphenomenal up until that point. The colour yeah. of the flower was epiphenomenal up until that point. But the interaction between the insect and the flower, which becomes mutu mutually beneficial, is what sets the stage for the next round of uh, evolution driven by selection. So it yeah. creates the next layer of functionality in the world. And I think that that's, yeah. that's highly relevant to the discussion of of signs, which we kind of first got into, because we sort of started talking about in relation to metaphor and, and, and narrative, um, because for that insect, the redness of the flower is a sign that, you know, come and check this out, basically. And then as those mm -hmm. things co-evolve, the redness or the increasingly complex patterns in the ultraviolet spectrum that you and I can't even see, but which look like landing, you know, lights for a bee flying around that obviously really attract its attention and say, come right here, here's, here's some goodies. Um, that co-evolution is the evolution of a, of a signifying relationship a relationship of, of sign, the sign that the flower is giving to the bee. Um, and there, there, are different, um, there are different strands of semiotic theory, of course, which, of which I'm not an expert in at all, but there are some strands which think of signs as a purely human thing and kind of a purely arbitrary thing. Yeah, I know, you're shaking your head, and of course I completely agree with you. Um, but a lot of semiotics has been concerned with the human use of signs, and I think that's understandable, because we do use signs in very particular ways, and of course being human, studying the world, we're particularly interested in the things that humans do. Um, but there's another strand of semiotics, which I think is founded by Charles Sanders Peirce, in which there are three different kinds of signs. Um, and the purely human one, and I'm not sure if it even is purely human, and maybe we'll see what you think about that. The purely human one is what he calls symbols. And symbols are things like words, which we've already discussed. They stand for something else, but they bear no objective relationship to that thing. So they only stand by it 
by virtue of convention. Their relation to it is arbitrary. Whereas a, um, what are his other ones? An icon is something that is actually representative. So human examples would be things like maps, that they actually in some way represent the environment that, um, that they are <laughs> representing, um, that they're signifying. Um, and, you know, paintings would be like that. And actually photographs are kind of like that. You know, photographs are not the thing. I mean, I'm looking at you right now and you're nodding, which, and I always like it when you're nodding. But, um, you know, I'm not actually looking at you, obviously. I'm looking at this combination of differently coloured pixels, which is, you know, giving me a representation of Ivan, which is more or less live. Um, and, and it's a pretty accurate representation from what I remember you looking like. But I'm not actually looking at you. I'm looking at what I think Peirce would refer to as an icon of you. Yeah. And then the third kind is a, is a, there's an indexical relationship. Um, so the third kind are the indices. And indices are things that stand for other things by virtue of some sort of causal connection. So like if I looked at the tracks of a snake moving through the sand, that would be that those tracks bear an indexical relationship to the snake. And even if I saw, you know, if I'm looking around and my pattern recognition skills are very good because I've spent a lot of time looking for snakes. And if there are any listeners wondering why I'm talking about snakes, it's because we both Ivan and I work on, on uh, snake venom evolution. So we spend a bit of time looking for snakes. Um, if I were to see a certain kind of glinting of light coming out, uh, a certain kind of way that light is reflecting and that attracted my attention because my pattern recognition skills honed over years of looking for snakes hone in, even though I'm not entirely consciously aware of this, they hone in on a certain kind of reflection which is indexical of, well, it's not indexical, it is light reflecting off scales. And that kind of reflection is unique or is somewhat characteristic. Well, yeah. Unless it is light reflecting from, you know, a piece of like a totally. elongated relief or something yeah, yeah, yeah. that is just, you, you know, can like always be confused. Morning, morning dew or evening dew and yeah. you're like, oh, that's a snake or Absolutely. a stick, right? Absolutely. If you see a stick, you're like, oh, a snake. And then it's a stick snake because you're... Yeah. So these are always, I mean, speaking yeah, of yeah, being yeah. in time, these perceptions are coming in a stream. So initially you are attracted to a certain kind of glinting of light which bears yeah. an indexical relationship to the snake and then you gather more percepts by reorienting yourself moving closer for example to that yeah. glinting of light and then you, yeah, you see another you know yeah but my point the point is that mm. you know even in this case you still have a symbol because you know in your mind your mind you read the mm. universe right so you get certain stimuli yeah. that you know, the elongated dark shape that glistens in a certain yeah, way. Yeah. And this is a symbol. This is all you see at the point of you registering it. Mm. So whether that symbol corresponds to the snake or to the stick or to something else is, you know, you will further investigate. Yeah. But because most, you know, you know that this is how you look for it. Mm -hmm. You're looking for it, right? And then you see whether it, you know, aligns or not. But it's still a symbol. Well, right? it's fallible. So, it's fallible. You could be mistaken, but it's not arbitrary. Yeah. And in, in but it, purses... the same with the metaphor. Like mm. that symbol is basically a metaphor for a snake as far as your brain is concerned. Because this is the way it basically a stripped down uh, 
a representation of the particular thing mm. that is, you know, like that comes to you in a specific way. Sure. So it is a, you know, abstract representation of a thing. It's oblong form mm. that, you know, moves in a certain way, or, you know, just ease mm. in a certain way mm. with, you know, certain glistening patterns to it. I, I don't I don't disagree with that. I think the only argument we're having or we would be having if we continue to have this argument is about the use of words. So in, in yeah. Peirce's sense, that the fact that it's not an arbitrary relationship um, is key. So symbols for him have arbitrary, purely conventional relationship. This is not a purely conventional relationship. It's an actual relationship between the fact that a certain kind of of um, thing out in the world causes a certain kind of um, sensory information or broadcasts a certain kind of sensory information, if you want, that you pick up on. Certainly, yeah, no, fair certainly yeah, it's I fallible. see where he's going with that. Yeah. But then, you know, if you painted that, if you paint just that, just that yeah. form that glistens, yeah. is it still a snake or is it now a metaphor for a snake? Or maybe somebody says that's not a snake, that's actually a stick. And there is no way for you to know what actually well, that now, is. Now, now. Really yeah. Just spots of pain. Yeah, I mean, we, so, we could talk about, um, obviously, R René Magritte and his, uh, his you know, this is not a pipe. Not painting. A pipe yeah. um, now, in Purse's scheme, you are talking about an icon. You know, you're talking about something that looks like the thing, but is not the thing. Whereas in the. In the relationship with the snake on the road, even though it might be a snake, a stick, um, it may be an actual snake in the world that is broadcasting this. Or yeah, broadcasting for sure, it. but then if you never check. If you're just passing it on the road yeah. and you're like, "Oh, that was a snake," but was it? You don't know. You never check. Yeah. So I'm. It clearly was something objective in the objective world, but yeah. what exactly that was, you don't know. Yeah. So what? What? Only the only thing that you've read was the you know symbols that your brain picked up, nothing else. So I don't think that basically you know since we in, we perceive everything through our uh, you know brains and through representations in our brains mm -hmm. like basically we're reading the book about the world all the time i mean in the very simplistic terms yeah and those, that book does not correspond to the world in one to one proportion because sure. it just there are a lot of you know misinformation there are a lot of just you know absence of signal or mm -hmm. you know over presence of signal because it's also, you know, you know, you do not perceive the initial information, right? You always perceive your interpretation. The brain doesn't give you, you know, a cube. It's just like, hey, this is a cube, mm -hmm. right? It tells you that this is a cube. You mm -hmm. know, like it connects it in a certain way. It reads it first, and then you go and check, and you're like, yeah, this is, you know, a cube or not a cube, a snake or not a snake. Mm -hmm. But initially, there is no stimuli that would, I mean, very rarely you would have a stimuli that has no meaning to it that it's kind of a does not it's not coming with this is what it is yeah. like just straight away yeah so it's a it, it is still a kind of conventionalism in the sense that you have evolved through your development and through your particular history of paying attention to certain kind of signs in the world you've evolved a pattern detection ability which relates this certain stimulus that's coming to you with a certain thing out there in the world um yeah 
that's yeah. sort of what you're saying. The, the there's still an important. There's a whole bunch of things we could talk about that that you've just brought up. There's a whole bunch of points we we could we could explore there. Um, with the with the um the different kinds of signs, the I think the important thing with the difference between um indices and symbols, um and icons is that. Indices are the kinds of signs in particular that are used by all animals to move through the world. And they're reacting to different properties than we are, just as we discussed that the bee can see infrared, uh, ultraviolet light, uh, has a different visual spectrum than, than we do. Um, but the point being that the human use of signs is not radically disjunct from the use of signs that the whole natural world is completely suffused with it has to yeah. come from that and the, yeah i'm not arguing that i'm no, actually I know. you know on the kind of strengthening that point because yeah. this is the, there is a continuum yeah. right yeah your brain presentation of a tree like the way you see tree from the afar mm. would be you know just basically you know a trunk a dark trunk with the bright uh, you know corona like bright leaves right that's all what you see mm. so when you you know make a sign for it the first sign for you to do that would be just to paint exactly yeah, that an icon <laughs> and this, yeah that would be an yeah. icon but this is what you see yeah so if in your brain this is exactly what the tree looks like if you're standing very far mm. away and you're not mm. trying to make sense of it mm. Mm. right but then even in your brain that can stand for something else, you can see, you know, another shape that is looks exactly like that and you can mistake it for a tree. Yeah. Or you can paint, you know, that tree and show to somebody, they might not recognize a tree. But, like, it's basically all the continuum. And from that, you know, you derive, you know, whatever, hier like, you know, kanji hieroglyphs, right? You derive mm -hmm. it from there mm -hmm. in, the, you know, whatever, Chinese or Egyptian form. Form, Egyptian form will be more primitive in the way because it's closer to the actual, you know, yeah. representation. Like pictograms, yeah. And yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you go from there basically up to the point of having abstractions because this yeah. is just, you know, obstructing it more and more and more. It's like it's the continuum. You're taking it from basically, it's not that we have developed something that does not exist in the world. It's more we are refining our representations of that. And yeah. so they all stem from our, the way we process the world, from the way. The world, our brain reflects the world. Basically. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with with all of that. Although there so, is, yeah, go on. Yeah, so the point, like, what I want to tie here is that they can exist. You can perceive something without interpretation. So mm. the idea that mm. if we can have, you know, science without interpretation mm. is just bogus by default. Yeah. Because even if you're reading, you know, row of numbers, you still interpreting them in a way you're still connecting them in some sense and uh the, i've heard one uh uh like scientist old scientist saying that he's not at this point he's not reading introductions or discussions in the papers because he he only reads results mm. because he does not want other people's interpretations he wants to get the you know the actual thing yeah, without yeah. any other people's interpretation it's just like are you stupid? Because <laughs> you, even if people, you know, giving you results, it's their interpretation already. They've taken a chunk of universe, ran through their experimental pipeline, which is the way they interpret the universe in the first mm. place, and then they put it together using their statistical means, which is another level of interpretation. So basically, they've already, you know, 
uh, chewed on reality, vomited it to you, and this is their interpretation. <laughs> this is what it is. And like, then you, you and then you yeah. interpret it when you engage with their results. Yeah, I mean, in yeah, that yeah. in that case, what you are creating is a kind of interpretive filter bubble in which you're saying that my interpretation of the results exactly. is in fact the correct one, and whatever yeah. they have to say about their results, I couldn't care less because they clearly are not able to interpret. They have nothing to teach me about their results, and they are not going yeah. to interpret them objectively. I will interpret them objectively, but everyone else's interpretation is purely subjective. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, that's a ridiculous fallacy. I think it's just the lack of you know, self-awareness, the yeah. lack of self-reflection. Because they, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's a very common trap for people to think that the way they assembly the world is the correct and objective way to assemble the world. Yeah. Because how else could it be? Yeah. We receive it that way, it's clearly this mm. way, right? If you see it this way, like, look, you know, it's a pen. It cannot be anything else. Like, I see it as a pen. My view of it is objective, right? Could but, be a weapon. Well, no, it's a pen because I see it as a pen and <laughs> yeah. perceive it as a pen, yeah, right? Yeah. So if you, if you assemble the world in a certain way, it's very easy for you to fall into the trap that this is the only way mm. to assemble the world. This is the only way reality is, in fact. Yeah. And everybody else who sees it differently, they just don't see the true truth. Yeah. I mean, and there are a couple I, of a couple of nice um, categorizations of that fallacy. Uh, one is, of course, the psychologist's fallacy, which is the idea precisely that, you know, my, my perspective is the, is the objective one and everybody else's is the subjective one. And then there's also something that the philosopher of science, and I think we're skirting around this issue a lot in this discussion, um, the philosopher of science, Wilfred Sellers, has a term called the myth of the given, and that is basically the belief that what is given to us in consciousness, basically, in perception, is the way the world, in fact, is. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that leads, that kind of belief, or the belief that that is, in fact, possible in some way, and in, particularly in a non-self-reflective way, and I think we could talk about systems of self-reflection such as you know buddhist conceptions here where you might be peeling away layers of interpretation and trying to get closer to some kind of quote-unquote pure perception now that would be an interesting discussion as to whether or not you can actually get to pure perception but at the level of, of the myth of the given and at the level that we're talking about with, with certain scientists today who believe in, just show me the facts, man, all I want is the facts, um, what they're engaging in is a kind of naive naturalism, a kind of naive metaphysics in which they don't, and again, which they don't even believe is metaphysics, but their metaphysical assumption is that whatever science... And they often don't even really know how to define what that is. But whatever science tells me, whatever that delivers to me, independent of humans in some amazing way that that can happen, um, that's the way reality is. And that there, yeah, that would be called the naive naturalistic fallacy. Um, that, and it could even be, it can be slightly more sophisticated than that. It could be something like the current consensus of scientific investigators and of the scientific community in any given area, that is 
a description of reality as it actually is. Like even that yeah. is still some form of the naive naturalistic fallacy. But it can, you know, it can be really bad, or it can be, you know, slightly less bad. Because I think there is an argument to make that the current consensus in any given scientific field is a good place to start, let's say, in terms of building your worldview about the phenomena that that field investigates. Um, it's not the end of that, but yeah. it is, and of course I always couch this in fallibilistic terms, which is to say that I expect whatever that field has to say right now is wrong and will continue to be updated and hopefully will be updated in a way that's in some sense moving towards the quote-unquote truth, if that is something yeah. that actually exists. And that's another you know difficult thing. Um, but right now, for purely pragmatic reasons, given that I'm not a specialist in, say, climate science, it's best for me to take the position that those people who are specialists in climate science, fallibilistic, or fallible though they all are, when we take that field as a whole, if there is any kind of consensus within that field, then that is probably the best place to start forming my beliefs about the climate. Um, yeah, no, for sure. And it's obviously, you know, like very likely it is the best uh, approach, like the best approximation of the true true that we can get at this current state because, you know, a lot of people try to do the best they can and investigate the, uh, you know, whatever phenomena to hopefully the best practices of the field. And they've come up with, like, they connected their, you know, individual understanding into the bigger understanding of the, of the thing. Yeah. But them and us and everybody else have still to remember that it is not the true true. And in mm -hmm. fact, we will never know the true true because Absolutely. we, you know, see with, you know, like we have limited eyesight, we have mm -hmm. limited perception of the world on so many levels, mm -hmm. just that even if we enhance it through our things, you know, through our, you know, whatever technology, it mm -hmm. still comes through the brain that is wired to process information in a certain limited way. Yeah. And that's just, there is no way out of it. Yeah. I mean, there again, there are just really, I think, useful philosophical touchstones. There's obviously the, the Kantian... Um, Immanuel Kant's um, uh, d distinction of phenomenal reality and noumenal reality, like that noumenal yeah. reality is the way things actually are independent of any kind of observer, and then phenomenal reality is what we actually live in. And so he basically he defines noumenal reality and then he kind of takes it off the table. It's like we can define this thing, but we can never really say anything else about it. Um, and there are interesting ways in which that's contradictory in by definition, because you are kind of saying something about it by positing its existence. And I think that's a really interesting question that we could explore, because different philosophical systems have reacted to that in different ways. But there's an idea that I really like, and I think it's just really um, straightforward in a way, which is the idea of the two truths in Buddhism, which initially sounds exactly like this Kantian dichotomy because the two truths are the conventional truth and the ultimate truth. Um, well, initially it kind of sounds like the conventional truth is all the things that people believe and the ultimate truth is the way things actually are. And then the question might arise from that, can we access this ultimate truth? Is it possible for some human to have this ultimate truth? And then it's, it's explored 
interestingly in different ways in, in different traditions, but the really sceptical tradition that I like, the, the Madhyamaka tradition, they basically end up saying that there are two truths, the conventional truth and the ultimate truth, and the ultimate truth is that the only truth is the conventional truth, basically. The ultimate truth is the emptiness of ultimate truth, which means that the only, the domain of truth, the only domain in which the word truth actually means anything is the conventional world. And they don't thereby embrace some kind of relativism where they say, oh, well, therefore anything goes. They're very much in keeping with the fallibilists like Karl Popper and like Charles Sanders Peirce, um, who say that even though we can never get this ultimate truth, we can be more or less correct about things. So we, yeah. we approach the truth. There's, there are better conventional truths and worse ones. And we approach the truth through all of our different processes of rational inquiry and whatever. We refine our conventional truth. And yeah. a way of thinking about it is, is and I think that in the, in the Madhyamaka tradition, they would say, no, that doesn't make sense because you're still reifying the ultimate in some way. But someone like Popper and I think Peirce would say that we approach the truth with a capital T asymptotically, you know, like it, it is a thing, they would say, and there is actual progress towards it, um, but we'll never actually reach it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, fair. But for purely philosophical uh, reasons, I would say that there is no ultimate truth. I would agree that there is no ultimate yeah. truth because reality just is. And the truth is about connection, is about, you know, you verifying that the thing is like this and not in any other way. Mm. But then how you define a thing. So basically what truth is all, always about some pattern that exists or is doing something. But in reality, I mean, we discern the patterns. We tell this is a pattern. We tell, tell you know, this is a gazelle, right, or something. But in reality, there are just, you know, there are things, there are how many of the things there are in reality, all of them are there. And mm. the only true statement about reality is reality itself. Like if you just mm. copy it, mm. that would be the true statement about reality. Yeah. But as soon as you're making abstractions about it, you're no longer having the, you know, the actual thing. You're having approximations of that. You're having you no know, distillations yeah. of that. Yeah. And so the, uh, I would kind of agree that, you know, reality is just like in a philosophical way, obviously, yeah. right? That reality is just chaos of many, you know, whatever it is, particles, mm. you know, fields, mm. energy, whatever mm. it actually is, it's that. Mm. And so every time we talk, so the word truth does not really apply there because yeah. it is everything and it is only one way or yeah, not yeah, yeah. the other way. Yeah. It is that. And so when we're talking about the truth, we are basically comparing the truth emerges when we compare our pattern that we distill from it mm. with, you know, other possible patterns that we can distill from it. Mm -hmm. So it mm. doesn't, it's not the comparison between a thing yeah. and a pattern. It's the comparison between our patterns. Yeah. Yeah. And whichever the best pattern we, we figured out is the true pattern. Yeah. So but that's... Well, yeah. That's... So the idea is to refine it as much as we can, you know, mm -hmm. that's... Mm -hmm. It's kind of like there was uh, at the beginning of phylogenetics, the people were saying that, and some people were saying, that the best approach to create the tree of life is to create as many wrong trees mm. of life as mm. possible mm. and to see what's, you know, similar between them. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's a standard fallibilistic conception, really, is that what we, 
So, I mean, the, the, the kinds of, of positions that you're outlining there come under a number of different names. Like conventionalism is something that I've, that I've said um, a number of times in this podcast, which is kind of the idea that truth is a convention. It's not ultimate in any kind of way. It sits on no foundation. So another term is anti-foundationalism. And Keneally doesn't like these, all this philosophical jargon. Um, but another term is anti-foundationalism, which is, again, it's exactly what you are articulating, which is that it's not founded on some bedrock of the absolute in any kind of way, because we have, we have no way of ever measuring that or, or accessing that. So it's a matter of, yes, comparing patterns and getting better and better and better. And so the idea yeah. of generating huge number of trees, and that's still the approach we have in phylogenetics yeah, to some the way extent. Um, words, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and and that's also a standard, you know, fallibilist idea. So that would be very in keeping with with Karl Popper, um, and of course people like David Hull, who were very important in that debate between you know cladists and and you know the early days of, of phylogenetics. He was very much a Popperian. So he very much saw it in that way, that what we have is we have hypotheses battling each other, and it's, it's very evolutionary in this sense. The, the fittest hypothesis is the one that's going to be able to survive the most criticisms from other yeah. hypotheses, and ultimately, not ultimately, that was a bad use of the word, but that will triumph conjecturally, provisionally. So again, Popper, all... Um, what is it? All knowledge is conjectural. Um, and also another nice one, which we're talking about, another nice popperism is, you know, all observation is theory laden. Um, yeah. Uh, all knowledge is conjectural because we don't know what hypotheses are going to emerge and criticize our current best guess hypothesis yet. We can't know until they emerge. The future is very open yeah. in this kind of model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at no point, I mean, basically, it's very important in my understanding for you know, every scientist to keep in mind that mm. those two things that, that, you know, the best, the best hypothesis right now, they, you know, are not the ultimate truth. In fact, they are very far from it, but mm. it's the best we have right now. Yeah. So basically, you know, it's very important to keep the balance that, you know, not saying, hey, you know, all hypotheses are equally, you know, yeah. wrong. Yeah. And, you know, your methodological uh, understanding of the world is equal to the scientific understanding of the world. But at the same time, you should remember that scientific understanding of the world, the current one, is also very far from the actual truth. Yeah. And uh, another thing is that, that, you know, as you said, all observations are theory-related, that is really freaking important. Mm. That if you're going to investigate something, you having an agenda. Even if you don't think that you have, you still have certain preconceived ideas. You still have, you know... You're looking for specific patterns. You're primed to be looking for one thing and not for another thing. And so you come into experiment with a idea, whether you think about it or not. Mm. And you are ne necessarily you know, collapsing the uh, possibility of finding something outside of your theory by you coming there with your you know, priors. So... That is like paramount yeah. to understand for for scientists. But yeah, I think you know a good way if people don't really feel that you know their perception is uh, like you know based on like basically it's like theories, hypotheses. Mm. 
is to, you know, because obviously it's quite hard to understand that, to, to see that, you know, colors are theories, right? The way you label colors and the way you see colors, they are interconnected. So if you are being brought up with, you know, more words for shades, you mm. will see more shades. Mm. If you train yourself to be, you know, to paint something, you will see more shades. Like that's obviously quite hard for, you know, people to grasp. But what should be easier is when they have certain uh, preconceived ideas that clearly contradicts other people's or cultures. For instance, you know, what is considered to be a good or a bad thing? What is considered to be a sin, right? We are very, we can, it is very easy for us to see that in other cultures and somewhat harder to see that in us. So when there is another culture and that says that if you stare at a cloud, this is punishable by death, you're like, this is really stupid. <laughs> mm. Like, you can see how this, and this is just ridiculous. But at the same time, you know, we come and we say, hey, you know, if you are, uh, you know, killing people, this is, this is necessarily bad. Like, I'm not saying it's not, but we basically have to recognize that there is no law in, you know, actual complex reality that says this has to be that way, right? Mm. It's us deciding that it has to be that way. And the fact that we're feeling that this is the right way actually is the way to, sh to see that everything we feel about that way is, a, you know, is a theory. Yeah. But I think it's really because, important. It's really important yeah. as you keep going down that path. And I know that you you've already you've already said this, and we've already we've already gestured towards it as well. But that you're not embracing some kind of cultural relativism, and there is a you know in which everyone sees the world differently, and therefore there's no yeah, such yeah. thing as you know a better or worse way to see the world. Um, one of the one of the real fears that pushes people into some kind of literalist view of the world, whether that's scientific literalism or religious literalism. And again, an issue here is that a lot of the apologists of science don't appreciate that they are just as much literalists as the dogmatic religious people, and that in fact they are, through their own literalism, they are inciting the literalism of the religious community. And there's a whole interesting history there, um, particularly surrounding evolutionary theory, but not only that. The ways evolutionary theory has been weaponized against um, the church since, since the 19th century, since the early days, um, and a kind of literalist interpretation of evolutionism has actually got the back up of the church and forced a lot of people in, in, in the church towards a more literalistic, dogmatic interpretation of those doctrines because they believe that they're battling for some kind of survival. And this is, again, this is where we, we have this hard task of taking the middle ground because we don't want to react to the obvious dangers of literalism, which we, we recognize, by embracing some kind of relativism, which is completely you know, bankrupt as well. We want to be able to say that, yes, there's only conventional truth, but there is better and worse conventional truth. But that becomes a difficult idea to communicate to people who are not uh, philosophically informed, maybe, or who are not self-reflective, as you said. And I really want to pick up. There, there are so many things that you that you said I there. Think, I, Hang I on, think, I, hold on. I think, yeah, yeah, you go. Okay. You go. Well, because I want to pick up on something else that you said, and every time you start going, there's like ten different things I want to respond to. I really want to respond to this um, this idea of again cult, either cultural conditioning in terms of you know, the classic and somewhat apocryphal example that people always bring up is the number of different Inuit words for snow. Um, 
but yes, you know, seeing if you have if you come from a language background that has more words or more nuanced usage of a single word, it doesn't have to be more words. It's more conventions, and those could exist on different axes, either in the interpretive domain or in the um, domain of actual numbers of words, that you can actually perceive more elements of reality. But I think you took that immediately in a really interesting direction. Um, because I think in, in some sense that's a kind of truism. It is it is true, like a lot of truisms, but it's a little bit inert. Whereas the much better example is when you talked about painters and training yourself to see more shades by you know trying to create things, trying to represent things in reality. What you're doing is you're paying closer attention to things um, and that is making your perceptual world, your phenomenology, is becoming richer thereby. And of course, I would always use the example of music in that regard, because there's a lot of music out there's a lot of music out there, and a lot of it's very different, and some of it's extremely complex, and you require, perhaps, one way of interpreting this is that you require a certain set of priors, a certain set of um, Basically, uh, well, let's just call them skills, so we don't necessarily have to go down that, that Bayesian pathway there. But you have to have a certain set of skills which come from practiced listening in order to actually understand certain kinds of music as music. So you've got to update your best theory of what music is and what music can be, and what an aesthetic object is, in order to recognize the layers of complexity and the richness of the piece of art that was always there in the first place. But your yeah. relationship to it can change so dramatically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A good example here would be pop music. Mm. A lot of pop music is actually quite good. Like, yeah. you know, a lot of, and most of it, especially the ones that make it, you know, to the, you know, to the top, they're usually really well, really well recorded with the really good musicians, right? Mm. So, but, but it is still a convention to think that pop music sucks because this is just, and people, they're not just, you know, sharing that convention for the purposes of interaction. They're sharing that deeply inside themselves, you know, if they do not identify with the, you know, mainstream culture if they like to think of themselves yeah. as somewhat marginal right pseudo-intellectual yeah it's a pseudo-intellectualism yeah, into rock yeah. right even if they're into rock they'll be oh spice girls are just shit yeah, yeah. and for them this is a true statement yeah, yeah. they don't see how this cannot be a true statement mm -hmm. for them this is like blatantly obviously the truth mm -hmm. that you know the spice girls track is just bad music <laughs> well in fact if you expand you know their own understanding if they go i don't know do something about like you know they try to listen more to the way you know music works yeah. on you know cricket levels then they can revisit you know spiral girls and be like hey actually the baseline there is actually quite good yeah. or something right and the same thing with you know like i think you told me a couple of times about the you know academical music and jazz yeah that academic you know professors they're just like you know music professors they're just like jazz is just bad music mm -hmm. that it does not you know make sense to mm -hmm. them in but it's like yeah, and jazz uh, jazz teachers. I've, I've I've had a jazz teacher tell me, and I mean he wasn't doing he wasn't um, quite saying that it's bad music, but he he just said I can't listen to anything um, if there are any parts of it that aren't improvised, basically. 
And he didn't mean like he has to listen to free jazz, but he means that when you listen to, we were actually talking about fusion. So we were talking about kind of halfway to jazz music. We were talking about the music of Al Di Miola, as it turns out, or as it happens. Um, and he was basically saying that the rhythm tracks are not improvised. And what he means by that is that the drummer is playing a certain pattern which keeps repeating, the bassist is playing a certain pattern. It's all ostinato-based is the way, that, like the technical way that someone like that would refer to it as. And pop music and rock music tends to be that. Um, that's one yeah. of the hallmarks of that kind of music. Whereas real jazz doesn't have to be free jazz. People can be playing a song with a clearly defined structure, but they are in it the way a jazz musician would see it is that they're actually living that music as they're playing it. It's yeah. not a pattern-based thing. It's a reaction in the moment to what everybody else is doing. And you know what? I completely understand what he's saying because I love that kind of music and there's a certain life yeah. and vibrancy to it when you attend to it in the right way, which you will not find in rock music and pop music. However, yeah. there's a certain joy to the ostinato as well. There's yeah, a certain yeah, yeah. pattern repetition sort of effect that you can have. It's like a mantra, you know? You can have yeah. that kind of effect and that is also good. You know, they're just different kinds of good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? well, that's yeah. exactly it, yeah. And but yeah. I think, you know, that, like, you know, grasping your own understanding of what is good and bad arbitrarily mm. and seeing how your you know immediate reaction to that is that there is a true value to your opinion there is a strong true value to your opinion yeah. you know whether for the sake of argument nowadays you know whether the trump is good or bad right i mean mm. like there is like people immediate have immediate reaction to that they they know the truth like yeah, you yeah. ask them the question and they know the truth yeah they so think it's objective they, their reaction yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But the point is that it is still like, you know, you need to make a step further and realize that this reaction is your opinion. It is subjective. Mm. So it's, I mean, it, it is on the gradient of the truth in some sense, but it's definitely not as strong a truth as you feel about it. Mm -hmm. And so then a step further would be to see that all your assumptions about the world are of that sort. No, not nothing that you have, you know, a knowledge about the world are of any other kind. There is no true value that you have about the world except for you exist. That is probably the only truth you can have. Mm. That you know, <laughs> you are right. Because, now you're like, sounding very Cartesian. Um, you sound like I'm, Descartes. You know. Yeah, yeah, and I understand that. I totally understand it. But this is the only thing that you know, you know, firsthand. Mm. That. You experience firsthand. You are the first to experience it, right? Yeah. Everything else comes to you through certain. I mean, even that comes to you through many filters. Well, and I also think that there's an important point there, which is lost in in the in the. I mean, that that's something that people go to a lot, and I do think it has an intuitive heft to it. You know, it's it's basically the, the solipsism argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it does have an intuitive heft to it, but I think that when when we, uh, and you, you could argue that this is a kind of conventionalism, obviously, but I think we have very good reason to believe that we, as personalities, as organisms in the world, only exist relationally. We only exist in relation to other things. So I think that there's a certain, so there's a logical um, heft to the Cartesian position, 
um, in the sense that you okay, know review. you can review from the you know Cartesian position that there and experience is, you know, is happening. You could things, see things happen. Yeah, experience yeah. happens. Yeah. that there is experience. Experience yeah. you're experiencing yeah. it. This is the only truth that you have. Mm. Like that, that experience is happening yeah. right now. Yeah, and everything else is up to the you know kind of a skepticism. And I think it's very good to have skepticism mm. about all the positions in your life. It doesn't mean that you have to change them. It doesn't mean that you have to believe that, oh, no, they're wrong. It's, you can well, it's still, not you know, nihilism. It's not nihilism. Yeah. It's skepticism. Yeah. 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 It's not, it's, yeah, it's not denying that, you know, yeah. Trump is stupid. It's just basically having some skepticism yeah. in, in your assumption, in your ability to judge yeah. it. Because it's just, there is no reason for you to think, for anybody to think that they have, I know any intimate connection to the truth that other people are not yeah. sharing, and in fact, that any of the humans have any intimate connection with the truth. And it's liberating as well, of course. I mean, the, the ancient Greek skeptics, and, and clearly the Buddhists, and I, I do want to push towards a discussion of the possibility of pure perception in a minute, and that maybe could be where we end this. But sure. clearly, both the the ancient Greek skeptics and the Buddhists believe that there was some kind of um, salvation, some kind of freedom from suffering to be had by embracing a certain form of skepticism. So instead of being so angst-ridden about certainty and, you know, how can I be certain about things? What can I be certain of? What can I believe in ultimately, foundationally? What do I, you know, build my worldview on? Uh, let go of that, realize that there's no such thing as certainty, and then embrace a kind of conventionalism in which you don't have to battle with common sense all the time. You know, you can accept the, um, the again, there's a problem here. You don't want to accept things too much, of course. And of course, you know, any skeptical position would not have you accept things too much. But there is a kind of value in, in conventionalism. There's a value in the received wisdom that you get from your society as well. You know, people, which is conventional. There are too many all or nothing positions on this kind of thing. It's either that you're a hardcore conservative and everything that your society has to tell you is absolutely correct and needs to be preserved and we must never change and all of that. And of course, that's a complete dead end. Well, it's clearly a dead end when you don't change. Um, and yeah. you can't stop change anyway because change is a ubiquitous part of the universe. Um, and then the opposite of that is some kind of nihilism or abject relativism where you say, well, there's no truth at all, so fuck it, you know, whatever goes. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Where there's yeah. a middle path where you say that for sure all the beliefs, the, the structures in society, all of these things that have evolved over thousands of years, there's a reason that they've come to us at this point. So I should try to understand them. I should realize that they do have some kind of inherent value, but at the same time, I should not see them as inviolable. I should see them as open to change, but it has to be measured change. It has to be, again, what Popper would call piecemeal social engineering, not some yeah. kind of revolutionary, bring the system down kind of idea. Yeah. Um, but see, the only reason, the only way people will... Uh, um, embody that idea if it becomes a group identity yeah. and it's because people, people are really big this is really destroys me actually this is my biggest problem with humanity is that people cannot let go the necessity to 
uh, group themselves into you know smaller tribes to group themselves into I'm with these guys, therefore I'm like this. Mm-hmm. And and that's uh, that's a know, conventionalism. Like, that's one of the yeah, deepest conventionalisms that we have, like, which is the product of our revolutionary you, history. Yeah, why can't you be just you? Why can't you yeah. just embody you know all the many yeah. things? Like you might be liking to go you know soccer drinking and bashing people on the head and then at the same time you might be into flowers like why don't you just connect like it doesn't you know there is no law that says that you should just be like many other guys or many other girls like whatever Mm. why i don't get it why do people cannot really just let this impulse go but you do as soon as that impulse is there they're into marginals right that's why you know the rift between you know in the mean us now but i mean everywhere in the world between the conservatives and progressives is Mm. expanded and this is you know similar to what you were saying about you know literal scientific uh communities forcing literalism in the uh, religious communities at the beginning of the 20th century creationists were not saying that world was created 6,000 years ago mm. they were saying it does not matter mm. like you know major hierarchs you know like whatever heresiarchs of the creationism there they were like it doesn't really matter 600,000 years 6 million years mm. the, what matters is that it, there was a clear point yeah. where it was created by God and then it you know took on its way but because they were ridiculed they were ridiculed extensively. There were movies that were, you know, making their position more absurd than they actually was. Mm-hmm. Their position became more absurd. Yeah. They said, no, it is 6,000 years to a freaking hour. And the, you know, it's now they're just like people like, okay, I'm in this group or I'm in that group. Mm. So if we have the middle way, the middle way doesn't have any appeal because you are not with any of those. You are kind of on your own. So, but when it gets the appeal, when it you know becomes a group, then it will be the same. People will be like, "This is the only way. There is no other way." All those schmucks on the sides—they're stupid and should be you know dealt with swiftly and you know violently. It's like, guys, come on. I agree. It's, but I don't think you should say because I know that you do. You shouldn't say that you don't understand why people are that way because I think that that is just well, a reflection of our evolutionary history. I understand exactly yeah. the reasons why they formed them. What I don't understand is on the individual level, how the hell can you feel like a human being, like an individual, if you are curbing your own individuality? That I just I don't understand that on the individual level. I understand yeah. exactly the mechanisms that are putting people like that together and mm-hmm. why you know we are like that. That I understand. But on an individual level, not really. Yeah. But I think you also recognize, because of your ability to self-reflect, that is something about you as an individual. Um, And you also recognize the need, I think, to be in groups. I mean, you can have some kind of, you know, radical you know, existentialist philosophy about personal freedom and, and, you know, existence preceding essence. So we all can define our own essence. But then you also don't want to give up, I don't think, um, or I don't think it's rational to want to give up certain elements of group identity, group cohesion, and all of that sort of yeah, thing. Again, you've sure. got to find a middle way. <laughs> you've got to, there's, yeah, there's yeah, a middle no, way here as well. Great. Groups of friends are great. Groups are helping, you know, and so much, so much. It's more like groups should not define you. Yeah. I mean, I think the only way to, to move in that direction is, and I th- actually think that we are moving in that direction. You know, I've said this many times, I think ever since our, even our first podcast, but, I, you know, in our conversations for many years, I've been saying this kind of thing. I think that 
a lot of what's going on at the moment is a kind of teething problem in the sense that things have been changing so fast and in a lot of respects they have been changing in a positive direction and we've been seeing the breakdown of a lot of really ancient group boundaries um, and things like, yeah, racism and sexism are still problems in the world today, but they're nothing like they were very recently, at least in certain parts of the world. They're still really bad in some places, really, really bad in some places, but they were really, really bad everywhere until only a couple of centuries ago. Like things are yeah. changing incredibly quickly. And then obviously when we've thrown the, um, you know, this social media revolution has had a huge impact here in the sense that we thought we were all ready or society thought it was ready or somebody thought we were ready somewhere for this. And there were all these utopian ideas coming out of Silicon Valley, right? You know, we make information free. We make, ev you know, everybody has access to everything all the time and everybody can communicate and we'll break down barriers and things like that. And it turns out that we're not as free of our evolutionary history as they thought we were. We're not as ready. And so when we now, we have been able to see more and more about the way other people view the world, but also in a very stripped down way that has been interpreted and poorly interpreted for mass consumption, you know, 140 characters on Twitter, being, or now it's 280, whatever, um, being the usual reference that people make. But anywhere on social media, you're portraying a kind of flattened, a coarse graining of your personality. And of course, a lot of people try to um, coarse grain it towards the positive, And that makes other people feel really shitty about themselves and blah, blah, blah. But we have seen that there's a lot we still don't agree on. There are a lot of things that other people do that we don't like for a lot of deep-seated reasons. And that's been quite alarming for us. And I think all that is is just the, the evidence that we hadn't really transcended our evolutionary history. And neither will we. But I do think things will continue to get... I mean, I'm, posit I'm, I'm optimist in that I think it's likely, even if things get a lot worse from this point now, with all of this, um, you know, group fighting, I suspect that that utopian idea of Silicon Valley, it will not be borne out in the way they thought it would be. And it's certainly not temporally, like in the, in the time frame that they expected it to be. But I do think that that is what we will see happen. And I think that there are there are a lot of people now arguing for a kind of middle way. Um, there are enough people doing that that it, it's it's got more social momentum than it's ever had at any point in the past. The, the moderate view, it might still be a relative minor, minority, although I suspect that it may not be. I suspect that the minorities are just more vocal and more angry and worked up the people on the polls, and they are therefore having a big impact at the moment. But the the moderate, maybe majority, and that includes a lot of people who just don't give a shit about any of this, um, are, you know, going to have an, an increasing impact on the future development of these sorts of things. So there's an idea... That might be taking, that might be taking wrongly. Like, if, just if you're saying that, you know, the... Uh, majority that does not give a shit basically i'm not saying that i said that includes some of those people for example about things will be you know will have more impact like that can be taken wrongly but i see what you say yeah yeah, yeah. Right? i'm not saying the apathetic people who don't care about the suffering of others or whatever but i do 
I do mean the people who are who are moderate in their concern for the suffering of others, such that they don't feel so driven by their reactions to become hardcore activists um, necessarily. Uh, And I do think those activists have an important role to play in society. And I'm not sure we want to get into a discussion of of all of that because that could lead us down another deep rabbit hole. They do have an important um, function to play in society, but I think the way they're going about it is problematic for a number of reasons um, is because they are they are reifying making real making more impactful in the world the suffering that they're reacting to including their own personal suffering and they're very susceptible therefore to not only just increasing suffering in general but to the kind of activist burnout phenomenon where they're going to go from being incredibly passionate activists to completely apathetic um, and maybe back and forth between those sorts of things because they are, I don't want to say indulging, but they're, they are in some way allowing in a non-reflective way their emotions to take control of them. And that is going to yeah, suck all their energy out of them, really. you know. So they, they, yeah. they're not... The way they're behaving is not going to, it does not set them up for long-term activism. Yeah. You know, it sets yes. them up for a flash in the pan thing. And when, if they're university students, and we know that a lot of them are, when they leave university and go out into the real world, they, as people like to say, which I don't really like that expression, but anyway, um, they're going to just become those people who don't give a shit because they've had their moment it was exciting while it happened and it was a flash in the pan you know very few of those people will go on to become genuine reformers yeah 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 yeah. but also you know a lot of people are going for that activism for the for the very same reason is that the group yeah Yeah. this is they're then being part of the group they found their group their group is doing this therefore they're doing this and feeling as if this is them but in fact if you remove them from the group they're no longer feeling like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, as you say, they're doing it for a a virtue signaling reason. It's not so much about what they think it's about. It's more about their social, you know, cred, basically. But like all the groups function that way, you know, Mm. like conservatives will function the same way. Any group functions in this way. It forces you to act and feel like everybody else. That's that's the main reason why we have groups. Yeah. You know, that's they are not just working well, as it, in like it makes you us feel thinking, safe. Oh, I should be behaving this way because they everybody else is behaving the way. No, you actually feel like behaving that sure. way. Sure. I I think we have these groups because it it's very frightening to go out on a limb and to have your own opinions because what if you're wrong? Again, it's this this yeah. addiction to certainty because yeah. one of the worst things we can imagine is being shown to be wrong in public, for example, because we believe that it's possible to genuinely be right about everything and never be wrong, which is just the yeah, complete yeah. fallacy of perfection. So being in a group, it protects you in so many ways. Again, I think the, the deep evolutionary roots of that are that it protects you from actually being violently killed by members of other groups. But yeah, no, for in, sure. a more, in a more sophisticated it, it, modern it, it, setting. It creates, like, you know, back to the truth thing. It creates yeah. a group truth. Yes, And I mean, exactly. the, the kind of, you know, alternative facts, they, you know, the idea of, you know, that we clearly see now that there are certain groups that create, you know, genuine, you know, fake uh, understanding or fake reality. Mm. That should make us, you know, reflect on the way our own reality is created. Definitely. Because they don't see it that way. They see it as a true joy. Yeah. So maybe some of the things that we see as a true joy is act equally fake. And in fact, it definitely oh, is. Yeah. So yeah. The groups, they, you know, they create those 
shared truths that are being verified just by virtue of people believing in it. Like if you are the only one believing it, you're like not so sure. But uh, if you have a lot of people believing in that, suddenly it gives you, you know, validity. It gives credibility to the whatever, you know, thing you're believing in, right? If many people believe in the omnipotent God who has horns on its head, it clearly exists because, you know, the more people believe, the well, you're more safe. it comes. You're safe in that belief uh, if, if it's confirmed. But it doesn't yeah. change the fact, yeah, it doesn't change anything about yeah. the actual statement. No. And so I think what is important in terms of, you know, scientists and scientific community is to understand when you are believing in certain scientific truths because they are the dogma or canon in science. And when do you actually believe in them because you actually understand them? Mm. Because, you know, a lot of uh, scientists, they function as in, oh, you know, this is the, you know, shared uh, understanding of the field. And I like they don't not really they cannot explain it to you. They don't know the, you know, methods or experiments or rationale that brought us this understanding. But they still believe that the understanding is true. Mm. And like just reflect on that. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the ways of. of simplifying maybe a number of the themes that we're exploring here is that we we maintain you know our group position is um you know truth is something that is only defined by convention and there's no yeah. such thing as truth outside convention however the worst possible thing is insular conventionalism when that you know splintering into different groups each with their own conventionalism, each with their own conventional truth, is the, the, the communication between those groups is prevented by some kind of dogmatic adherence to convention within groups that has built into its own mechanism of truth preservation the idea that if it comes from outside this particular wall, it is not true by definition. Yeah. I'm not sure if I did actually say that in a simple or a very good way, but I love how purely <laughs> metaphorically, perhaps, or maybe not, but getting back to metaphor in science, this is actually very similar to what thermodynamics tells us about the difference between closed and open systems. You know, a closed system, which is not importing work from outside itself, will always tend towards fragmentation, will always tend towards entropy. That's where the second law dominates a system, right? Entropy will always increase in such a thing. So you get fragmentation if you close yourself off from the world. This is, by the way, part of a refutation of solipsism uh, at a certain level anyway. Um, you know, the, the only way you can be a, a, a solipsist is if basically the entire universe is you, right? Um, yeah. As an, as an individual human, um, such as we understand a human to be, um, you can't be isolated because if your brain is a completely closed system, which is not bringing in new information from the outside world it will become dominated by the second law of thermodynamics or something equivalent to that, some higher order manifestation of that, and it will trend towards um, complete fragmentation. And that's kind of what we see with dementia and also certain disorders like schizophrenia, where there is a disconnect from the world. People become very isolated in their own worlds because they, in some sense, can't really 
trust anything they feel that is coming in from the outside. And ultimately, they can't tell the difference whether things are coming from the outside or whether things are, are self-created. Um, and this, I hope, is going to lead us to this pure perception thing at the end, because this is the antithesis of pure perception. When the lens of the self is so thickly um, or so, uh, so murky between you and the world... Mm-hmm. Your the incoming sense data is so filtered through your own theories that it becomes inevitably distorted beyond all recognition. There's a breakdown between the connection between you and the world, and that is, well, it's firstly uh, partly caused by, but then it exacerbates a breakdown in connectivity within your own brain. Networks yeah, that should then be. you create things that do not exist. Yeah. And you create personalities that you know were not there, and then you create and multiply things within your head. Mm. You become very fragmented. Um, yep. So, okay. he, so I want to ask this this question to finish us off. Uh, I think we, you know, we've kind of been all over the place, and there have been lots of different interesting things we, we could have discussed, as always. But um, I just want to ask you a question about you get your opinion or your thoughts on the idea of a certain kind of pure perception um and this i mean again this could go in a number of directions it it could tie in with a reaction to some things you were saying about the brain representing the world previously um Mm -hmm. but in certain buddhist well i think kind of in the buddhist tradition as a whole maybe um and also in certain much more modern western philosophical traditions like phenomenology there is this idea that you can by attending to things in the right way you can strip away the layers of theory let's say the layers of the self if you want the filter that's normally between you and the world you can strip that away and get down to some kind of bedrock which is pure in some sense pure perception um well i don't want to make that too complicated so maybe just react to that in the first place what do, what do you think I about that think kind of idea that, i mean i well depends on what you mean by pure perception you can definitely go lower than your usual mm-hmm. state of interpretations so you can definitely switch off a lot of interpretations and in fact you can go as low as to strip you know, to stop interpretations of forms and shapes and mm-hmm. shades and all of that. But there is obviously a limit to which you can go. And beyond that limit, there are still interpretations that are made purely by, you know, the um, structures of your brain. Mm-hmm. So Well, you can... aren't they all though? But yeah, go on. Well, they are. But I mean, the point is that, <laughs> yeah. you know, there is certain information that comes into your senses mm-hmm. or is created by your brain mm-hmm. initially mm-hmm. that you still cannot perceive in its, uh, you know, rawness mm. because it has to be uh, combined and processed and integrated before you can actually see it. So with the, at the very lower point, even if you make a tremendous effort to, you know, switch off as many interpretive circles and circuits as possible mm. you will still see interpreted yeah. information so some some kind of interpretation is a precondition of perception yeah yeah no i, yeah. I would completely agree with that i think when you if you could strip it all away then the world falls apart because yeah well and then one can say that this is exactly what you know carlos castaneda slash donovan 
yeah. talking about about stopping the world for sure for sure yeah, because it will assemble because it will you know because the what makes the world in your psyche the world or you you is the assembly as soon as you you know assembly is built by interpretation and connection so as soon as you stop interpretation it falls apart it necessarily falls apart yeah. that's kind of what i mean when i'm saying that there is no you know coherent reality that reality is chaos because any coherence is the product of interpretation yeah well i think i think that that that's perhaps going too far in a certain sense because i do think well obviously i think that i think that there is this actually brings would take us back into a discussion of the the um, objective existence of signs in the world and of the objective existence of relations in the world that we are built to perceive. So I don't actually think that um, all of the order in the world is just projected onto it by us in no, some way. No, definitely not. Definitely um, not. The point is that you can assemble it this way, you can assemble it that way, and you can assemble it some other way. Yes, yes and no. I don't actually... I think that that's, that's too relativistic because I think that the... Um, certainly being a human right we're already locked into many 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 millions of years of a certain evolutionary trajectory there are certainly other ways that the world can be there are different umwelts right in the term of um Uxkul, uh the the early you know founder of, of or precursor to biosemiotics um there are different worlds that different organisms are privy to or that they perceive but the patterns that we are keying into are, in some sense, objective to the extent that that actually, speaking of things as being objective, yeah, makes I'll, any I'll, sense. I'll, I, don't, I don't want to I'll get into that in too much detail. What I kind of want to say, as just a little bit of pushback, not, not, um, not because I think it's one way or the other, because I think there are to- totally legitimate ways of talking about, of saying that the brain represents the world, or represents things in reality. I think there are totally legitimate ways of talking about that. But I also think that, and this really just agrees with what you're saying. So it's kind of a it's kind of a fine point on terminology. And the interesting thing being that it's a big debate in in cognitive science, in philosophy of mind, and you know other branches as to whether the brain represents the world in consciousness, or like whether consciousness is a representation of the world, or whether the world is present to us in consciousness. And I think there are different ways of saying the thing, but I think it's an important insight that is not easily accessed through the representationalist view that the only place that there is such a thing um, that can be meaningly, meaningfully referred to with the term world is in consciousness. So, yeah. so whilst a photograph of some part of the world is a representation of that part of the world, the thing you see when you're in that part of the world is not a representation of it. It is the world, right? Yeah, okay. Within the... <laughs> Uh, framework of what you said previously that the only you know place that the world can exist mm. and still be called the world is inside your consciousness then yes surely i agree with that yeah uh, i mean that's kind of a coarse way or an unsubtle way of putting it but i think that i think that that's an important insight as well and i think that the whole representationalist line of thinking even though you can use the term representation or um you know, represents, you can have a representationalist view which is legitimate, um, 
it can be barred from this thing and it can put you into situations of regress towards something like Cartesian skepticism where you start to think well maybe I'm a brain in a vat this is all just representations anyway this is not the objective world so how do I know what's real and I think that common sense should actually at some point pull you out of that and say that but I think you need an evolutionary um, and not just an evolutionary in the, the broadest possible sense in which everything evolves, you know, evolution is just constrained change, but an actual functional evolutionary explanation should be what rescues you from that risk of, of you know, Cartesian skepticism. Um, there is a very good reason to believe that the patterns we detect in the world are real patterns in whatever it is that, you know, the world is. Um, so it's not so I think, I think you take it a little bit too far. I know you like saying it that way, and we all like saying things in certain ways. I obviously have my particular hobby horses. But when you say that it's actually just chaos underneath, I don't think so. I don't think there's any reason to believe that. Yeah, um, it's not even chaos, right? It's not just like this is a chaos. Like we know, like it is whichever way. It mm. is like every way, basically. There is, it's basically non-uniformed, you know, to the furthest extent thing yeah and so so i think i think that there there is a going back to the very beginning of the conversation and bringing together um mythological narratives about the um the evolution i would say of the universe with modern evolutionary metaphysics which is yet to be fully articulated, but there are many, many interesting strands of that kind of thought in 20th century um, science and philosophy of science. And you can think about things like complexity theory and biosemiotics and yada, yada, yada. I think that the beginning, in the beginning, um, of what is our current universe that we, we, we live in, and it could have easily, you know, it doesn't have to be the beginning of reality, it could easily be an expansion and contraction kind of thing, you know, bouncing or whatever, it doesn't have to be an absolute beginning. But I think I'm, I'm quite attracted to the idea, and I think it's, it's present in, in modern cosmology, but it's prefigured in people like, again, Charles Sanders Peirce, who I've been reading a lot of recently, and hence I've been referencing him a lot in this conversation, that in the beginning it was kind of like that chaos that you're talking about in the sense that it was and this is completely maps onto a lot of um mythological discussions of the beginning you know there was a primordial chaos and from that order began to emerge yeah but i think that that is actually what consciousness is making it's not what the evolution i mean evolution kind of you know got us consciousness but whatever the order begins begins with consciousness basically what i would you know what i would stand for is that any representation of of any Mm. worldly phenomena is much more ordered inside the brain than it is outside of the brain like any phenomena and any object is much much more chaotic in actuality than it is in representation i would say it's coarse-grained the brain coarse-grains things so it's much more complex or complicated in reality like, you know, it's yeah, noisier it is, the complexity is reduced and because of the reduction of complexity patterns become more apparent and they become more visible i mean they're still there but the point is that you can get those patterns or you can get the other patterns just like, yes that's that's possibly true like the world is unfolded when it's just there 
Mm. And it's, you know, deeper, but still unfolded. But then when you take it in, you strip it out of most of its complexity, and that is what allows you to fold. But the way you strip it of its complexity is the choice of your, you know, perception. Yeah, I think that that's, I think that that's true. Um, without wanting to unpack that ad nauseum for, you know, we've already been talking for an hour and 40 minutes. Um, <laughs> without wanting to unpack that ad nauseum, I think that that's basically true. But I think that it's wrong to say that the order begins with consciousness. No, I think the order begins with relationships. I think the order begins with a tendency towards habit formation, basically. That's how Peirce would describe it, and that's how I've been describing it, independent of reading Peirce, um, is that in the beginning, you do have some kind of chaos of potentiality, but there, of possibility, and things are radically open at that point. But there is a tendency for things to enter into relationships with each other and via those relationships certain habits are formed and the yeah, earliest sure. habits that are formed that are of relevance to our you know best descriptions of the universe at the moment are what we would call the laws of physics um, yeah, sure. and those habits then constrain all subsequent evolution so yeah 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 yeah. yeah, but they constrain it in the you know non-uniformed way. Obviously, uh, it's not deterministic. The time, yeah. So they, you know, here there are one constraint. Here is a different constraint. If you're inside the star, the constraints are one thing. If you're you know on the planet Earth, it's a different thing. And so the constraints, constraints are not uniformed. And so yeah, I mean there are you no know, structures. I'm not saying they're not structures. So it's not just a uniform thing, right? It's a non like uniform but it's basically like you know what i'm saying is like world is a rorschach test you know you are looking there are patterns there but there are so many patterns and it's like you know it is or you know duck or rabbit it's a duck or a rabbit but the thing is both yeah but i, I think i of course i agree with it when you put it that way but i i think that that is um you are making a big leap there and actually the laws of physics are the same inside a star or everywhere wow. else in the in the known universe. It may be the case that you know the universe is a bubble, and there are lots of other yeah, places. I mean, without like you know, without wanting to be skeptical about physics, physics, which I mean, I okay, I will you know, my understanding of it is really limited, so I will take their you know uh, methodology for actually being allow allowing them to tell that. Mm -hmm. However, I'm not sure if it, if it actually allows them to tell that. In my understanding, if we want to say that, you know, carbon has, you know, like 12, you know, parts of you know, nucleus, like, you know, six protons, six neutrons, we have to measure, like, freaking many of them. So I would, Like, I, much more than we yeah. have to measure. But, but fine, whatever. Everything is, you know, mm. in the spectrum of known universe, yes. Okay, mm. sure. Well, you're skipping but, across, for me, you're skipping across too many categories. We don't need to get further into this, but... I would agree that physics is a conventionalism, right? We've we've been discussing this the yeah. whole time. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I would say that that conventionalism is built. So I would say it's conventional. It's conventions all the way down, but those conventions don't begin in consciousness. So conventions are basically habits, right? I would say that those habits. Yeah, yeah. Don't begin. The point I'm yeah. trying to make, man, is that um, there's a kind of in the way you're putting it, there's a kind of, and you will say that it's not like this, but there's a kind of human exceptionalism or there's still a separation of consciousness from the world. What I'm, yeah, saying, what I'm saying is that the, the conventions, the habits, the patterns that 
um, subserve consciousness are patterns that are long predate conscious organisms that yeah, are objective sure. patterns in the world. I agree with yeah. the, the duck rabbit, like gestalt shifts and Rorschach stuff, but that's a different issue, you know? We're talking about the difference between whether reality is coherent in some sense at, at, the, at the biggest possible scale, in the broadest possible way. It is. Yeah, but I think that you're just... Re- yeah. Anyway, we'll leave it there. Small <laughs> spectrum. It might be coherent, you know, on some level. It might be coherent in the way of looking at it. And, you know, the patterns would be there. But basically, I don't believe that those patterns are exclusive to, you know, that they do not intersect with the other patterns in the some, you know, way that basically you cannot have them all. You have to choose the way you're looking at mm. reality and then mm. you will see patterns. But as soon as you change the way you're looking at reality, you will see different patterns and you cannot see them both at the same time. This is the point that I'm making. Yeah. So it's that they, they, you know, both of the patterns will exist, both of the sets, right? You know, set A and set B, they exist in reality. You're not making them up, but they interconnect in the way that like basically are mutually exclusive. If you're, you know, you have to take a side looking at. Yeah, I, I completely get what you're saying. The way I would put it is that you can coarse grain reality in many different ways. And we have very good reason to believe that many different organisms on Earth, despite the fact that we all share a certain degree of conventionalism with each other because we share evolutionary origins with each other so we began sensing the world in a in a shared way so we have some sort of habits that are the same i think we have very good reason to believe that different organisms inhabit different umwelts right they inhabit different worlds basically what what is a yeah. world to a tick which is a famous example that Uxkull uses um and that heidegger appropriates um is different from what the world is to you and I, for sure. Uh, and I, I think that there would be a very long conversation about whether our symbolic abilities, not our semiotic or not our, not our sign-detecting abilities, because that is a universal thing that life has, but our symbolic ability, our symbolic language, has enabled us to discover more object like that we have in some sense broken free to in a in a conditional way we're still constrained but that we have expanded our umwelt so dramatically and i think that we have um and i think that the things that we're discovering are in some sense true but they're true within a conventional framework um i mean i I, so i think we basically agree about most of this stuff it's just that you're always trying to take me to task for saying that coherence is a useful way of tracking truth. Um, and I don't, I obviously don't agree with that. Uh, I don't have to use the word coherence. I could use the word consonance or whatever for what I was initially talking about. I was talking about when two groups of humans working through completely disparate, um, not completely because they share some of their evolutionary history, but working through disparate ways of investigating the world come up with very similar explanations for things, that those are good things to pay attention to. That's what I always meant by coherence. Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, we can get now, like, not better one to get, for us to get there, <laughs> but we can, is, in, you know, 
how do we actually measure what's different and what's similar between mm -hmm. them? Mm -hmm. Because you can say no, they're actually very yeah. different. You know, one say that there is a you know prime mover, and another says that there is there ain't anything such thing. You know, like you're basically you know it boils down to the fact that then you are looking for the patterns, mm -hmm. and you can look for the patterns of similarities, and you can look for the patterns of difference. For sure, and you can say yeah, they come up with the certain things. You know that are the same or they have come up to the totally different understanding of the world absolutely but there like, are there are better and worse ways of tracking obviously. those sorts of patterns yeah um, definitely definitely yeah that is obviously that is obviously true and there, there, and there are is more... obviously you know, there are obviously patterns in reality sure yeah of course yeah i, I basically just, i don't i yeah. don't think they make ultimate sense basically i don't think there is a way to uh, connect everything in the universe in the single way. That you, you know, is you know that I don't think that either. I mean, we've talked about that so much. So I, the you know the idea of that things are coherent that kind of implies it that no, they coherent they connect in one way. No, it, it, it doesn't actually. It doesn't. Um, the idea that things are coherent at, in some sense, <laughs> all these qualifiers which make these things almost meaningless. It. There, it's kind of like you said earlier, and I've said in previous podcasts, and we've talked about heaps of times, you know, there is no model that captures all the detail of reality yeah. other than reality itself. When you yeah. when you create a model of something that's complex enough to, um, to be... It, you know, ah, not expressing this well, but models are always coarse grainings, basically, right? Yeah. Um, and that's why, you know, in certain famous examples, you know, models of storms on computers are not wet, right? Because they coarse grain that sort of yeah. thing out of them. Um, so, yeah, yeah, look, I think we, we completely agree on most of these things. I'm not sure that our difference is any more substantial than being purely semantic, I just find it interesting that you're always trying to take me to task on this, even though I've explained that what I mean by that word is not all those things that you are attempting to accuse me of. That's a good to check whether you still agree with yourself, whether you still agree with yourself. That's a bit fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's leave it there. Um, yeah.